Hey, thanks again for coming back. Um, this Fred, just continuing the Fred walk slash talks. There's a, a moon right out there. Um, we are, there's some other ducks here I can't really describe. I'm not going to describe, I'm just going to call them ducks for now. I'm not going to get too keen on them because I don't have my binoculars on them. But I'll tell you generally what I think they are. And I'll tell you the ones I can definitely tell you just by stuff. But I don't see a lot of seabirds out here right now. But you never know when to sit tight for a while. So, we'll just walk out here. Um, this is like really crazy rock formation. It's all dark. It's kind of got a little grit sort of texture to it, but it looks like some, like, you want to say lava type process. I think maybe it has something to do with that. I'm not sure if this is basalt. I don't know what this is, because I'm not a geologist, but I want to learn about it. I only know some things regarding that, but I can just say it's really wild looking. It's got these sort of horizontal, sort of off vertical horizontal striations in it. Uh, with erosions and it's got all these like veins all over it's all the same color largely and it's got all these little holes that have been worn out into it which creates all these tide pools right and uh and then inside the pocket beaches where the gravels are all getting ground up and polished and washed over the ones i was talking about that were created by the glaciers in some of the earlier episodes so oh and then yeah so there's this rock formation here and it's just really, really beautiful. Goes up the vertical face. And ooh, I'm looking out right now. There are surf scooters. And brilliant colors of the bill of the male. Oh, there's a bunch they just rose there. And uh, yeah, they're they're basically black. The, the females are kind of dusky, but the males are brilliant. Uh, they get the black and the orange uh, bills really kind of stout heavy weather birds they eat like clams and stuff like crustaceans like they can eat they can eat clams and mollusks and uh, crush them in their in their crops like remember we we're talking about eagles will do that or raptors will will crush bones and feathers in their crops well so these guys can do that with clamshells I'm just standing behind the rock here oh there's a bunch of surfacing now they can kind of see me so they're a bit wary but I'm just acting casual so I'm putting my head down, and they're pretty close, but and I'm pretending not to be all focused on them. So we talking about that too. Yeah, they're getting all comfy now. Uh, it's they're hanging here, but they're kind of going off. There's one, two, three, six, seven. There's eight of them. And there's a gull with them, and there's also a uh, a loon offshore. Looks like a common loon. Obviously, it's winter plumage. Um, the ones, the ones I love. We talked about are the yellow bill. Well, I love them all, but I mean, it's really cool to see a yellow bill. I want to see another one one day. I mean, I want to see them here. I guess if I went north, I could see them, but I don't think I'm going to leave the islands for a while. <clears throat> Ooh, there's a hermit crab in this tide pool. Look at that, and a whole bunch of sea anemones. Yeah, so these little cattle pools, they're like round and they drop sort of, they're eroded into the rock. You can imagine rocks inside of a rattle that were getting washed around and around and around, creating a little hole. And then there's big holes too, like there's bigger tide pools. In the summertime, it kind of goes over an algae because it gets really warm out on these rocks. 
but this is uh, middle of winter. And uh, so it's quite a bit cooler. And yeah, so I'm gonna keep walking. You can hear the ground. Maybe I'll go over there. A little bit enough, I just realized. Because we're in the, one of these little wash areas, right? So it's high tide. And it's just washing, it's just cleaning and polishing those gravels. And you can physically hear it. And this is one of Earth's processes, okay? So we're talking high arc field reasoning, we're talking about spatial time action. Now we're talking about the, 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 the grains of gravel on a beach that are getting eroded. Of course, it wouldn't do for me to drop into that. Because if I did, this show would turn into another um, Fred adventure when I was younger which I don't want to repeat right now. Okay, still, so, but we still will get close to this gravel. And I'm gonna go down there. Listen up. On the backwash, listening to the gravel getting polished. Like it's built, it's shooting gravel all over up on these rocks on the side, and then go tumbling down, and then it's just relentless. Oh, there's two big loons chasing each other on the water. They're flapping their wings and running across the water. Um, yeah, they're just still doing it, and they're just trucking, putting a lot of energy into that. One's chasing the other across the water. They're sort of flapping their wings on top. They're running and pushing on top of the water and chasing each other. With two, they're still doing it. That guy, they're either, I don't know if they're pissed at each other or if that's some kind of really groovy behavior to bond, but it looks like he's pissed. He's wasting a lot of energy in the winter time. Like he's still pushing after him. And they're really going, I mean, these are loons that are running on top of the water and flapping their wings. They must be getting so exhausted now. Oh, the other part too is, they're probably so full, they can't take off. That happens sometimes. Or, maybe there's part of molt. I just don't know, here we are. And now they're chasing right back to me. <laughs> Did a big loop, they're coming straight at me now. Okay, they're coming straight for sure. Right into this little, towards the big swells. They're still chasing each other. So the only reason I'm continually to comment on this is because I've never seen such a, a determined uh, chasing with them. Oh God, he's pissed. Cause the, oh, he's killed. No, <clears throat> the one in front finally relented <clears throat> and, and took a little breather and then the other one picked up and just went for him. Now he's out racing ahead for his very life, it seems. I've never seen that with that type of aggression that I'm witnessing. Oh, and he's putting it on! These things, this is like a race on the water. Now I gotta go. I can't believe I'm commentating here like this is, uh, who's that guy, Mario Andretti? Remember that guy? That's from my time. These guys are still going down. They're going right across, right across the face of those, uh, those scoters that have now drifted off. And I swear they're still going. <laughs> oh, 
that's unbelievable. Like if, the, if the, the one behind him is so determined not to let the other one go, that he, they're just expending all of their calories. Oh, he's still on him. That is amazing. Still on him. And he's still on him. And so I'm afraid if he dives underwater, oh, he just turned off. He just turned off. Okay, and, he, and the, the one that stopped just, just sort of stood up and flapped their wings like loons do. And the other guy's still beating it out of here. Like, he's just beating it out of here. So obviously, the one that was behind, they just did the big lift and flap. The other guy's still going. He's peeling way away. He's like, I'm out of here, man. And I just got out of there with my life. He is still going. And the other one's up, pumping up. He's all pumped. He's lifted his wings. The other guy's still, still terrified. And he's, he is now, God, he's got to be at least 100 meters away. And I can still see, in, like from the other bird, and I'm seeing him way out there, and I can see this rooster tail of white water. Oh, he just stopped. He just stopped. Oh, man. That, that thing's heart must be really pounding right now. Now, that is a really interesting observation, which I've literally never seen before. I mean, I've seen them acted up with each other, but it looked like he would have killed them. Like, he, there was one moment where... He was literally on his back, and the other one just escaped, and then he just poured it on. And, uh, yeah, so that was quite something. Anyways, that was a pair of loons uh, doing their thing right out in front of me. There's a dog print in the mud, footprint, and a raccoon print. Hmm. So what that also means is raccoon prints, okay, Human impacts. Well, the trail did take us here, right? So then the thronging hordes will come, probably, and walk on that trail. Um, and so that's why it's important to remember the beauty and the sensitivity of this place. Um, just if I'm tracking now, I see multiple footprints in the mud, human prints, and dog prints, and uh, raccoon prints. Okay. Yeah. So, and there's erosion you know, relating to that. And, uh, there, so, essentially it's an impact, right? But, uh, there's a lot of wheels going out here. I know we're back over by the gravel. And it's all, it's all good. Oh, there's a person. So, when they, if I have to look back there and they're staring at me, I think they just turned around. I think they might be doing the same thing I'm doing. So I won't worry about it too much. Um, I've been out here before with red fluid balloons popping right up in front of me. And gray whales flapping their pectoral fins just offshore. Of course, that's where the humpback baby was. So, yeah, I mean, the whales loved it around here because of the complexity of the ocean. Remember we talked about that? And uh, the bathymetry of the ocean floor which is basically the underwater um, topography of the ocean floor. And that complex, these complex areas with these tides here coming up off the, you know, you got the big North Pacific Ocean, you got the big sort of fluctuating oceanic regimes bringing different temperatures and salinities and, 
and associated nutrients and um, you know basically all the life that's associated with that billowing around in the ocean like a cumulus cloud in a way and all around the islands and then upwelling off on that steep remember we talked about trying to climb on one of the other episodes or maybe it's this one trying to climb back up that mountain from underwater down from the abyssal plain of the deep ocean up to up 9,000 feet before you can get your head above water you know anyways so inside of that sort of physical structure of where it is we are um just a whole lot of life going on right that's typical of ecosystems when you have these complex areas when I talk about complex I mean or biogeography now we're speaking when I talk about complex geography or, or um, topography or bathymetry when you basically have terrain the um, enduring landscape of the region which is the terrain mountains rivers lakes and even human things like roads um, all affect That's right. the ecosystem and your way just by their physical structures being there and then ecosystems and all living things around respond to their surroundings in ways they can in order to survive typically and so when they when certain ecosystems have extended long through time get affected by specific actions that are created by say human action or collective action and they can no longer perpetuate themselves into perpetuity, um, then you could look at that as just a general measure of the impact that uh, human society is causing um, to the integrity of that ecosystem. And concepts of integrity are kind of subjective. And, uh, so I'm just thinking about another term like resilience resilience, biodiversity, uh, rates of time, like what would be inside of the natural condition of a landscape for, for uh, ecosystems to change through time so that they can sustain themselves and or evolve in ways that they can continue to emerge as living entities on the planet. <coughs> course, I don't have the answers to that, but I do think about it, so, and I do observe it in my way, and I think maybe there is some insight to be gained by thinking about um, using our awareness of ecosystems and our surroundings as indicators to the ecological health of our regions and to the planet Earth. Like, I was once tasked with a job which was a great job for me, and I won't get into all the details because I want to reveal certain things on whatever. But uh, anyways, they wanted to know, they wanted me to give them what are the ecological indicators that would describe, uh, well, what are the keystone, they wanted to know what the keystone species was. So that was the first paper, yeah. What What is the keystone species of our region? And so I, you know, I really, really wanted to, it was a good job for me because I was, I needed it and I had little kids and just the situation I wanted to work with nature still and we had to move and all this kind of stuff so here is my chance to explain 
uh, keystone species to this conservation guy. He might give me a job, right? So I can buy Cheerios and not have to work at the pub anymore. Which I didn't mind. I haven't done that lots, but whatever. It's all good. But it's nice to do something with nature if I can. And uh, so here's my chance. Anyway, so didn't want to blow it. So I think really hard and I ponder after living in the woods for a long time and with my kids and my wife being back in Peterborough in the city, I thought and I thought uh, with regards to the surrounding landscape, okay, keystone species, keystone species. Uh, you know, they want to, and also I was tasked with you know, interpreting um, some of the information coming out of the Brutland Accord, which was this environmental treaty, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it had to do with these new terms that uh, the federal government used to clamp down on uh, the way they deal with nature and they want them to use ecosystem management approach. And of course, we signed on to the accord, which is a great thing, but nobody really knew what that meant. <laughs> so, what do we, so what are we doing? So I was asked to help try to figure that out. And uh, based on whatever I knew, thought I knew from living in the woods for a long time, and, uh, and, and so anyways, long story short is, you know, they're looking for things like inside of the trophic levels of the ecosystem, various levels. Okay, well, we can use plankton as, a, uh, as an indicator for ecological health. Or maybe we can use uh, a beaver. Let's use a beaver for ecological health because we know that they are a keystone species. And we, any Canadian, you know, um, worth his or her or their salt, um, knows a little bit about beavers and how they're, how they're a keystone species to maintaining certain types of ecosystems in our regions. Anyways, so yeah, so I'm thinking, okay, indicators, keystone species, wolves, uh, large uh, herbivores, no, uh, la la la. Anyways, it eventually came down to human consciousness, which I realized it's our collective conscious uh, as we exist, our current paradigm, in fact, that we sort of interact within is um, the keystone element of what's happening with our ecosystems, as it seems. Um, now, I know that's just a, something to think about for a second, and of course, I can hear all the various arguments, whatever. I think I can. Maybe not all of them. All of them. But, just think of it. Our collective conscious, as uh, humans impacting ecosystems. Now, because I was trying to interpret ecological health, I wanted to be able to look at the ecosystem and understand uh, what that meant and how we could describe it in a meaningful way, right? Like, these are all just ideas, and there's some descriptors for coming to terms with the fact that we want to better understand how we relate with nature so that we don't create the same impacts and we can live sustainably through time knowing that we have this relationship going on and that we care about it and we value it in such a way that we're willing to abide by some of these principles that might constrict other values that other people are currently, um, you know, totally vibing on, like, you know, high consumption rates and multiple devices and all these things. I'm just, you know, I'm getting to my technophobic side, but essentially what I'm saying is it's human consciousness Right? Collectively. You can see it in the landscapes of Ontario, is what I found. You go to, like, my ancestors came to North America a very long time ago, or some of them, and uh, through their 
histories in life here have seen dramatic changes in the landscapes uh, that they've lived in. And uh, what I've noticed uh, is that, uh, well, I just used my own region when I did this paper, as uh, for instance, was the relative, um, okay, Peterborough, you go to Peterborough, you go to some of the outlying regions there, uh, south of the Quarthas, and you'll see these areas. I mean, there was a big influx of Irish people there and stuff, you know? That was one big part of the influx that came there at a specific point in time. And those areas got farmed, blah, blah, blah. The trees went down, and the farms came up. And it was the same hard, scrab pad, uh, hard scrabble stuff that they had in Ireland, right? And eventually got abandoned and turned back to forest. Um, but the cultural baggage of the people that came to there just uh, used that knowledge to apply themselves in that ecosystem and then you know basically failed because uh, just couldn't support uh, the type of agriculture that they were hoping to do right and uh, but then you go then you go from the city of uh, Toronto you know you come from Toronto you go up to that region say south of the shield and you see uh, a whole bunch of things like you go through the urban areas 401 then you go through the agricultural areas and the outlying regions and the out agricultural areas then you see little pocket forests you see these little uh forests that are like contained by agriculture and sprawl and that, those are the areas i used to love to go and you can see lots of raptors actually certain types of these areas and there is quite a bit of complexity and there's quite more than you might imagine there for wildlife anyways um but it's still an island ecosystem, and the ecological integrity of these little isolated areas, you can imagine a small forest fragment on a large farm that's been cut over for firewood, but has some remnants and all these things in there, surrounded by monocultural um, corn, right? You might have a red tail in there. You might have a, um, a horned owl in there. But if maybe a bit of a bigger area, you got some complexity nearby, you'll have some red-shouldered hawks instead. And you're in deep enough where the red shoulders can keep the red tails away, right? So, I mean, it's just a way of looking at it. And then you get further north to where it's all contiguous forest again. Um, but the key element there in terms of evaluating the landscape, which I soon discovered, well, it, didn't, it took me months and reflection to figure it out, this part of it, is that it's just all of that is, all the landscape there again now has, has a big, uh, impact on it by the collective culture of the people that have interfaced with it through time, and it can the collective uh, the collective um, uh, result of that interface can be seen imprinted directly on the landscape. I mean, I simply have to um, prove that by saying, look at a city. You know, move to a, go to a suburb. You know, do think of the thing I just said. Think of that little that drive up north. Right, where you go until eventually you get into contiguous forest again. Thankfully, you have that area still to go to, right? Many places in the world don't. And so when it comes to trying to evaluate uh, ecological integrity or ecological health, right? Sometimes you fantasize about this notion called wilderness. And then you think, oh yeah, wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. Uh, yeah, so wilderness. That's a whole different one. I gotta go now because my thumb is frozen. And
I just have to turn this off for a second because I just got to chill. Okay, and thanks again for hanging out with me. And I look forward to doing it again. Okay, bye.